Well, welcome to the second week in our four-week walk through the first three chapters of Genesis. We're calling it The Beginning, which I know is a very creative title. came up with that all by myself. Last week we studied the first chapter, and the first four verses of the second chapter, and we learned about God. We learned two very important truths about God. He is eternal, and He is the Creator. That's the ground that we covered last week. This week we're going to be talking about the creation of man. Next week, next Sunday, the day after Valentine's Day, we'll be talking about Adam and Eve, the first male-female relationship. That's right, guys. Next (laughs) Saturday, or this coming Saturday, is Valentine's Day, I think. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and I can see the panic setting in on some of your faces as you thought, man, is that this Saturday? And you have no clue what you're going to do. It's terrifying, isn't it? Of course, I have it all figured out. But. And then the final Sunday of this month, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3, which is about the fall when sin entered our world. Now, I want you to understand that these messages are totally connected to each other. Each one is incomplete without the others. So I'm asking you, please, try to be here the next two Sundays. This message today, I'm very excited about it, but it's incomplete without next Sunday's message and the following Sunday's message. And studying these things, I have benefited so much from it. And I know that you will too. Please, try to be here the next two weeks. And I'm sorry to pull the rug out from under you a little bit. Last week I said that this Sunday we were going to be looking at the first half of Genesis chapter 2. And yet here we are, I read the second half of Genesis chapter 1. And in fact that is what we're going to be focusing on today, the second half of Genesis chapter 1. But I realized studying this week that we can't really move into chapter 2 without understanding this. This bit about man being created in God's image. Very important. I know that some of you are thinking, I didn't even know we were studying Genesis to begin with. (laughs) That's okay. Shoot me an interested look every once in a while. We'll be all right. Good point. We didn't spend any time last week on these verses of Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 31. I'm really excited to zoom in on these today because it has huge implications for how we see ourselves, how we see everyone around us. It's huge, huge truth here for us this morning. So today we're going to try to get to the bottom of what makes man so special. And there are a lot of indicators that man is special among creation. Uh, first, let's just read the text. I mean, remember I said last week that these chapters have a structure. They're put together carefully. And that anytime you have a historical narrative like this, the, what they choose to add in is very important because it shows us what the author's trying to get across. He doesn't add every single detail about creation. He picks the ones that will most effectively get across the instruction for us. And the structure helps us to figure out what is most important here. So just let the repetitions in the text guide you through the passage. You can look at your Bibles with me. And I'm just going to sort of shoot through the repetitions of Genesis chapter 1. Day 1. God created stuff and saw that it was good. Day three, God created stuff and saw that it was good. Day four, God created stuff 
and saw that it was good. Day five, God created stuff and saw that it was good. Day six, God created man and saw that it was very good. The author disrupts the whole flow of what he's doing. That's not an accident. He disrupts the whole flow of his passage to grab our attention at the creation of man. And in this sense, the whole passage is leading up and pointing to the creation of man. It's all composed to make this day stand out. Day one, he says, let there be light. Day two, he says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Day three, he says, let the waters be gathered into one place and let the earth sprout vegetation. Day four, he says, let there be lights in the heavens. Day five, he says, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the earth bring forth living creatures. Day six, let us make man in our image. See how he breaks the flow there? And suddenly he moves to much more personal language. Let us do this. Or I mean, let there be this. Let there be that. Let there be this. And then he says, let us make man. And by the way, if you're wondering what all this us business is about in this passage, if you're wondering what, what is this us about, why all this plural and then singular, I thought I was talking about God and who else, come next week. I'm not going to even give you a hint as the answer to that right now. I want you to come next week. We're going to be talking about that next week. Back to the passage. He created vegetation yielding seed after its kind. He created the sea creatures swarming in the water after their kind. He created the birds of the air after their kind. He made the cattle after their kind, creeping things after their kind, beasts of the earth after their kind. Then he created man. After their kind? No, he created man in his image. This whole passage is pointing to this. There's something big here. And this is what the author's trying to get us to notice. So it stands out. It's like you're reading, and okay, he does this and this and this, and then bam, this is different. He creates man, and it's very good. And he creates man in his image. It's a very startling statement. What does this mean? I think we've all heard the phrase, but what does it mean? We're created in the image of God. I think we all have some notion that this means, you know, we're created in God's image, so there's some we have some worth or we're special in some way. You'll hear lots of folks who are in the abortion debate referring to this, you know, made in God's image. There's something about this. That's important. It gives us worth. In Genesis 9, 6, God says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God he made man. So something about us being made in the image of God forms a foundation for this rule that we shouldn't kill each other. It's not just because, well, that's not nice to kill somebody. Lives have worth. And it seems as though from the text that this worth is found in the fact that we bear God's image. In other words, killing another human being carries the harshest penalty, capital punishment, the death penalty, 
For one reason. Because man is made in God's image. And thus his life is valuable. And thus his life has worth. Listen to some of the things that God's word says about how valuable our lives are. And you can flip with me if you'd like to, to Psalm 130, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, starting at verse 13. Listen to some of the things that God's word says about how valuable our lives are in his eyes. Psalm 139, starting at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. He wove you in the womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have been skillfully wrought. Wrought is not a word that we use nearly enough, I don't think. I'm bringing it back. Your days have been ordained. Do you see how intentional, how careful all of this is? None of you are an accident. You were carefully, carefully, skillfully wrought. Your days were ordained by God. He didn't just grab a bunch of people like dice and just sort of toss them out on the earth. Your existence was so carefully planned. But if being made in God's image were only all about our value. The value of our life. The fact that we have worth. Then why didn't he just say that? Back in Genesis, our primary passage. Why didn't he just say, let us create man extra special? Because I want him to be more valuable and have more importance than tree frogs. Or why didn't he just say, let us make man out of something really nice. Really valuable, like gold and diamonds. Let's make man out of this. Because I want man to be more valuable than other things. I want him to be worth a lot. Kind of like a collector's edition among my creation. You know, evolutionists say that basically, I know I'm generalizing and simplifying a lot of complex thought here, but evolutionists say basically that we came from monkeys. I've got news for them. The materials we were made of were a lot more humble than monkeys. We're made from dirt. <laughs> I mean, we walk on dirt. That's what God's Word says. God formed us out of dirt. Clearly, our value is not just about what we're made of or what we come from. I mean, is dirt really more valuable than monkeys? I know that's not a question you expected to be confronted with this morning. (laughs) He said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. 
So what does this mean? Clearly, something about this sets us apart from all the rest of creation. It gives us our lives worth and value. Did you know there are actually a lot of different ideas about what this means? About what this means that we're created in the image of God. There's lots of different ideas. And I've been studying them this week in particular. I've been studying these ideas. And I've got to tell you, they all have good support. Biblically. Well, not they all, but most of them have good support. Biblically. There's lots of different ideas about what it means. But I just want us to get a sense for what the passage says. So flip back with me to Genesis chapter 1. We just want to get a sense for what does this just say. You know, around the time this book was written, in the area of the world where the author and the original readers lived, this language was somewhat common. The image of God. This language was somewhat common. And they used it in reference to kings. In Egypt in particular... They were prone to speak of their kings as the image of God. Or one of their gods anyway. They had lots of gods. See, the king was representative of God. The king had God's authority. Because he was like the representation of God. That's why like, I couldn't have just strolled up on the scene in Egypt and been like, Okay, I'm going to be your ruler now. You guys move that sand over there. You do this. I have no authority in of myself. But if they saw the king... As the image of God, bearing whatever God they were thinking of, bearing His image and His authority, then they would obey Him. And I mention this just to point out that the cultural context for the writer and the original readers may have understood this phrase a little bit differently than we do. Because we don't view our president as being the image of our God. It seems to them they would possibly have understood this phrase to have something to do with representative rulership. But let's get back to the text. Does that seem like it makes sense with the text? I think it does. If a natural reading of the passage, right after God announced that he would create man in his image and in his likeness, he flows right into a description of what man is going to be up to. And what is it? Man would rule over the fish of the sea. Man would rule over the birds of the sky. He would rule over the cattle. He would rule over all the earth and every creeping thing. And then in verse 27, it's repeated again. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then it flows right into this charge about what they are to do now. They're created in God's image. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every living thing that moves on the earth. So it seems like from the context of the original writer and the original readers and from what just the text seems to just flow and what it says, that there's something to this idea that our being made in the image of God has something to do with the fact that we were put on earth with his authority to rule over his creation. Now flip with me to another passage. I'm going to have you flip it all over the place. Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, starting at verse 3. This chapter has been called David's commentary on the first two chapters of Genesis. 
This is David writing. Psalm chapter 8, beginning at verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David is saying that man is crowned with glory and righteousness. How? Why? Tell me more about this, David. Man is crowned with glory and righteousness? Look at how it works itself out. Man is crowned with glory and righteousness. Because God makes him rule over the works of his hands. So the cultural context, the natural reading of the first chapter of Genesis itself, and David's view of the passage, lead us in the same direction. The image of God thing has to do with our function as representative rulers over creation. And it is in this sense that we are made in the image of God. Special. In a class totally apart from all the other animals. Evolutionists will miss this forever. Now, take all this that we've said this morning. All this stuff that that you just heard. Take all this and just sort of put it in a compartment of your mind over here. It's a neat little compartment. Just remember all this that we've said. And flip a few passages ahead of where we started in Genesis. To Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 5, we encounter this phrase again. Starting at verse 1. Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And the day when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. And he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became a father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. So here's this phrase again, in his likeness, in his image. And what does it seem to be referring to? It seems to be referring to family resemblance. Looks like it's just talking about family resemblance. Seth was in Adam's image, in his likeness. I've been told that I look a lot like my father looked when he was younger. I've also been told that I look like a slightly more masculine version of my mom. (laughs) (laughs) And even though I'm the only one in my family that has kept blonde hair into adulthood, and even though my brother sucked up all the melanin before I came along... I still bear the image and likeness of my parents. And you do too. So if we are to interpret Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, similarly to this really very clear usage here, 
It looks like the image of God also has to do with some sort of resemblance. It's not just that we have His authority to rule over creation. Somehow we resemble God. So the question now is, how do we resemble God who is spirit? This is your other compartment that I want you to open up now. We've got the compartment of that we basically rule creation. God's given us that privilege and that authority. Here's another compartment of what it means that we're made in the image of God. Somehow we resemble God. So how do we resemble God who is spirit? This is one of those things that will kind of baffle you if you start really trying to think about it. I mean, I may resemble my father because I have his nose or, you know, his build. But I can't really have that for God. That seems to be what it was talking about with Seth and Adam. So what does this mean? There have been a lot of answers set forth to this. And like I said, I think a lot of them have good biblical support. And honestly, I think there are a lot of ways that we resemble our Heavenly Father. Just like there are a lot of ways that I resemble my earthly father and you resemble yours. And we don't have time to look through all of them. So let's just again simply look back at at the text. Let's just see what seems evident. What's the most obvious, the most prominent thing in the text that might help us answer this question? How do we resemble God? I think there's two things that stand out. We're going to talk about one of them today. We're going to talk about another one next week. So again, try to be here next week. Because this message is incomplete without next week. And the week after that. I'm not even going to tell you what that other aspect is. I'll leave you in total suspense this week so you'll come. Now, we all know that first impressions are very important. First impressions make a big deal. In friendships, in business, if you make a bad first impression or an unclear first impression, you're off on the wrong foot. It's kind of an art to it. The art of the first impression. Now, don't you think that God would be pretty good at the art of the first impression? I think he would. So what is our first impression of God? If we'd never heard of him before... And we were walking along in the park and we saw this book and we opened it up to page 1, Genesis 1-1. And we started reading. What would be our first impression of God? What would we think of who He is? Do we see that He's loving? Do we see that He's holy? Do we see that He's wrathful towards sin? Is that the first impression he gives? What we see is God creating everything, step by step, creating these awesome things. This is our first impression of God in his creative, industrious, working mode. His creative mode, that's our first impression of God. So when it says in this context, that we bear the image of God, we resemble Him, surely this, this aspect of His creativity, His industriousness, His productive, creative nature, surely this has something to do with that resemblance. Because so far, that's really all we know of God. If we just had never heard of Him before, we're just reading this passage. 
And if you keep reading, the suspicion is confirmed by the fact that right after he says that we're made in his image, what does he say? Does he say, okay, Adam, you're made in my image. Now just sit back and relax and just enjoy it. Just enjoy the glory of being made in my image. Eat some fruit. Take it easy. You've got it made. You're valuable. You're made in my image. Is that what he says right after he says that? No, he gives them this big to-do list, basically. He gives them stuff to do. All those things, rule over these things. Subdue the earth. Cultivate it. You're in charge. You're made in my image. Do these things. So in short, it seems as though we were created to be creative. We were made to be productive. We were created to work in this sense. Our being created in God's image and likeness has to do with the fact that we can plan and complete all manner of creative tasks. And our world tells us that leisure is the goal. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that at the end of the day, we should be able to sit back, look at the work that we have done, the things we have done, the energy we have put out, and what it has accomplished. We should be able to sit back and like our Heavenly Father, whom we resemble, say, it is good. Creative working, doing our best, is fulfilling because it's what we're made for. It's been said that man is most like God when he's being creative. Now, I'm not just talking about artistic creativity. I'm not just talking about your career. I'm talking about all that and more. Our whole lifestyle. I mean, this passage is, is basically talking about farming. But the point is that being made in God's image, we are to explore and subdue and cultivate and rule over His creation. And it brings Him glory when we do that. It's good. And trust me, this isn't something easy for me. I view work as a means to more leisure. I'll work hard for a while, but man, I better get the payoff of leisure. The Bible views work as a good end in of itself. In other words, man was created in God's image. And this means that he has authority to rule over creation and he has the ability to rule over creation. That he resembles God. What other animal can do this? I'd like to see those monkeys try to do it. They wouldn't last five minutes. So what does this mean for me and what does this mean for you? I think the first thing that we can take from this is that it means... That your life is important. Your life is important. Not because of what you're made out of. Not because you're so much smarter than the next guy. Or you're so much more beautiful than the next girl. Or because of some skill or ability that you alone possess. It's not because you're so nice and you have so many friends. Your life is important. Because you bear the image of God. You bear the image of God. I bear the image of God. If the thought 
of suicide has ever entered your mind. And in a room this large, I'm willing to bet that it has for probably more than just one person in this room. If the thought of suicide has ever entered your mind, and you're at what just seems like an absolute dead end in your life, and there seems to be no place to turn, you've exhausted all your options, and you just don't even know what to do anymore. And the oppressive weight of it all is just crushing you from within. And the thought of suicide pops into your mind. Do not do it. Your life has worth. Your life has worth. Don't ever think about throwing it away. Your life has been skillfully, carefully woven and ordained by God. You're endowed with the authority and the ability to rule over His creation. And He has something for you, some purpose, some meaning. Your existence was so carefully planned and brought about. So the question here is, how do you see yourself? We spend so much of our time and energy often trying to mold ourselves in the image of something else. And we look at the magazines of what these people in Hollywood look like. And we look at the movies and we listen to the music and we try to mold ourselves into this image of what we see and hear. And we forget that you're already made in the image of God. How do you see yourself? None of that other mess matters. How God sees you is reality. Reality is the world as God sees it. And He sees you as having infinite just worth and value because you're made in His image. The second thing we can take from this is that other people's lives are important. Your life is important because you're made in the image of God. Other people's lives are important because they, too, are made in the image of God. Your friends, your enemies, the homeless person huddled for warmth under the bridge, the executive at the top floor of the building in downtown Charlotte, the kid at school that gets made fun of by everybody, the guy that cuts you off on 74 on your way to work. What do all these people have in common? They are each skillfully and carefully woven and ordained by God. They've each been made in the glory of God and given the authority and the ability to creatively work and rule over the creation God has made. It's important when a baby is born. It's important when someone passes away. Our lives are important. And no matter how you feel about premarital sex, no matter how you feel about abortion, no matter how you feel about the wars going on in which people's lives are being lost, let this principle guide your thinking. Remember what's at stake. Remember how seriously God takes each of our lives. Each life was valuable enough for Him to send His Son to die. And you better be sure, you better make sure that that isn't indeed one of his precious image bearers in that womb before you abort it, terminate it, kill it. You better be sure that there's good reason 
for lives to be taken in war or what have you. Take this seriously. If you're going to take one thing seriously, take lives seriously. The question is, how do you see people around you? Now, I'm aware that this leaves a lot of unanswered questions. Like, if this is all true, then why is working and being creative and being productive such a pain in the neck? If this is all true and we're made for this and it's supposed to be great and good for us, then why is it so hard to go to work and why do I hate it so much? Why is it so hard to find fulfillment in doing any of this stuff? Why do I still feel worthless? Even if I believe what we've said here from this book, why do I still feel like this? And maybe most importantly, okay, well, what do I do now? Well, I told you this was going to be incomplete, didn't I? I warned you. Come the next two weeks. I'm telling you, the way this works together is beautiful and amazing. Come the next two weeks. It will help you in your marriage. It will help you in your relationship to other people. It will help you if you're not married to try to figure out what to do on your way to getting married or if you want to. It will help you in your relationship with God. These first three chapters of this book, these foundational chapters of this book, are just just huge, hugely important. And the more I study, the more I'm just amazed at the beauty of it. Just the, the way it all works together is beautiful. So come for the next two weeks. Have I mentioned that? That I want you to come the next two weeks? For now, let it suffice to say that your life has worth and value. And God is fighting to get you to see it and to live according to it. To realize it. Evolutionary thought, atheistic thought. These ideas will lead you to one conclusion. If you truly believe them and take them to their fullest extent, these ideas will take you to one conclusion. If there is no God, we are but dust in the wind. If there is no God, we're just dust in the wind. And it's captured beautifully and heartbreakingly by the song by the same name. And you've probably all heard it. I'm not going to sing it. In case you're worried, people in the nursery are trying to scramble for the knob and turn the volume down. (laughs) But listen to the lyrics. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. I close my eyes only for a moment, and then the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes. A curiosity. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. It's the same old song. We're just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do just crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Life's too short, brothers and sisters. Don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever. But the earth and sky is there always. And all your money won't another minute buy. Dust. All we are is dust in the wind. Open your eyes, you've acquired quite a bit. Keep your balance, don't you slip. It could all end instantly, as you will see. Time waits for no one. It just moves on. When will we learn that all we are is dust in the wind? Everything is dust in the wind. 
Man, what hopelessness. What hopelessness. The picture the world paints without God is utter hopelessness. It's just dust in the wind. What does it even matter? If you live, if I live. You are more than this. We're carefully woven, fearfully and wonderfully made, skillfully wrought in the image of God. Our lives were ordained with purpose. Your life was ordained with purpose and value. The people you come into contact with, all these things are true for them as well. May we each live according to this truth this week. That's my prayer. And may we each come back the next two weeks.